from the American School Counselor Association, this is I Hear You Say, a podcast for school counselors and other leaders in education. I'm Jen Walsh, Director of Education and Training here at ASCA. When parents are strategically involved in students' learning at school and at home, student achievement improves and schools are more effective. Today, we're talking to Jenny Schultz, school counselor at Glacier Edge Elementary, and Lori Burgos, director of bilingual programs and instructional equity, both in Verona, Wisconsin, a suburb of Madison, Wisconsin. Working at the district level with bilingual staff and interpretation teams for family engagement specific to their Latino population, they've incorporated creative ways to involve parents within the school and the students' learning process. Welcome, Jenny and Lori. I hear you say that parent involvement in your district is critical to the success of the schools and individual students. I just think you can't cut the parent out of the equation for education. It it really has to be a team with all education, all students, all parents. So to not have entry point for a parent into the educational system, you are you're already setting yourself up for struggles with that child's education. So, and I think having the parents be connected into the child's educational journey through the work that I've done or that I've seen in in the public school system, to cut a parent out of the equation is just, it's always negative. It never has any, any positive results. So, and it doesn't have to be parent volunteering every week in the room. It, it can just mean that the parent understands what the homework schedule is, or they understand who to talk to when their, their child is having a problem with another student, or they know about college night at the high school, or they have, so it's, it's just having a link. It's having a way to access the system. And without it, you're going to have kids that are struggling to figure out, you know, for example, at the high school level, how do you fill out the FAFSA? I've got all of these dreams, but I don't know how to execute on them. And without the parent being able to support, it really puts an extra burden on the student, which almost seems insurmountable in a lot of ways. And I I think also that it's important to recognize that learning happens in multiple places, right? In lots of different contexts. So yes, there's a lot of learning that happens at school, but children are also learning from their families at home and the the information and the values that families pass on to children is extremely important in that child's life and that sometimes that learning first of all we as educators don't acknowledge it or we don't recognize it or we don't value it to the same extent that we do the teaching uh, that we do at school so first we need to get to know families and get to know what's important to them, what they want for their children, how we can support their children in a way that is respectful of who they are as a family. And that can't happen without dialogue and without really taking time to get to know who people are and how you can partner, right? When you think about partnering with someone or developing partnerships with families, there there are power dynamics involved and it's really important for us as educators to be able to to build trust and and solid relationships with families so that they don't feel that what they are doing has less value than what we are doing at school. And and I think that's important for us again as educators to really be reflective of what 
what assumptions we're making about families, about families who speak another language at home or families who live in poverty. And and I don't know that we are always we always take the time to reflect on our assumptions enough. I'd also add, I'm talking about those narratives again, without knowing the family or without the family knowing the school, it can be easy to fall into kind of negative thought processes. Like if a student isn't returning their planner signed or whatever, you know, it, it can be easy to think to yourself, oh, this family's kind of checked out or they're not doing it or, you know, that sort of thing. And meanwhile, if the if the student is going home to his parents and saying the teacher is making me stay in for recess and I'm the only one that has to stay in for recess and there's no relationship there, it can be easy for the parent to think, oh, that teacher doesn't like my student. And and in reality, you know, if the parent and the teacher are communicating or have at least a beginning level of trust, then they can come to the conclusion of, no, the student isn't showing the planner to mom and dad, or, you know, the teacher is having the student stay in for recess in order to finish. And it's not about, you know, this, the teacher doesn't like my kid, or the parent isn't engaged. And those kinds of thought processes can completely derail, you know, the student's educational process, right? Because now, meanwhile, it hasn't done their homework, but the parents and teacher aren't talking about what's really going on because that, that relationship isn't there. It sounds like you have a pretty diverse population in Verona. Can you talk about how that affects parent involvement and the narratives that can come about as a result in staff and community members? We're home to one of the district's three programs, a two-way immersion program, where students have half their day in Spanish and half their day in English. Just to give a few more statistics about our district, we serve about 5,500 students pre-K through 12, and about 65% of our student population is white, about 22% of our student population is Latino, About 8% of our student population is African-American, and I just completely lost track of my math on that. But we we probably have about um, 6% of our students who identify as two or more races. We also have a small um, Asian, Native American, Pacific Islander population in our district. Other diverse populations in our district could include students who qualify for free or reduced lunch, about 26% of our students district-wide do fall into that category. About 14% of our students are identified as English learners. And students with disabilities, about 6%. I think one important thing to remember, especially when we're talking about diverse populations of students, especially when we add labels to categories, is it gets easy to think of these groups of students as homogeneous, and they're not. So, for example, English learners in Verona um, are our highest population in terms of language background is Spanish, but we also have 43 other languages represented in our district. And so when we talk about English learners as a category, even within the Spanish-speaking population, it can be very easy to come to conclusions or make assumptions that all of the students are the same, that their families are the same and have similar beliefs and backgrounds. And the truth of the matter is that it's actually a very heterogeneous population. And it's important to remember individual identity for students and for their families. And I think on a, on a systems level, the narratives play out very similarly across districts. So in Verona, if you make reference to Allied Drive or students who live in Nakoma, those neighborhoods have baggage that they carry with them and 
Um, and I think that's true of almost every district, right? Like that neighborhood. And so there are a lot of assumptions that people bring to families who live in that neighborhood or uh, families who live in poverty or students who, and the level of engagement of the families or their level of interest in education, how much students and families value education. And all of these are just underlying narratives, right? That, that sometimes when you just scratch the surface, they emerge and they can emerge in really harmful ways um, and in ways that can be even hard for us as educators to recognize that we hold and we believe. And so there's always that finding ways to have those really honest conversations about who we are as a district, what we believe and what our implicit bias is about families who do live in those neighborhoods. Um, and also remembering that families have different ways of wanting to engage with us and whose voices have had historically more and less value in our system. And so it's not just advocating for families who live in those neighborhoods, because then it's still our voice that's highlighted with their message, but making sure that they have ways where their voice is the one that's really around the table and being valued as much as families who are already engaged and already know how to enter our system in sometimes very loud ways. I think it's more like an almost a narrative of education on what family engagement looks like or what supporting your students' education, you know, kind of looks like, sounds like, appears as. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've worked to really look at is looking at creating multiple points of entry for parents into the school system so that there's a variety of ways that parents can engage uh, within the school system rather than one or two ways. So those one or two ways, maybe a traditional way might be joining the PTO or the PTA of a, of a school. And that's an excellent way for parents to engage and, and certainly has value and is important. And then there's an and, right? And, and what else, um, what other ways can parents engage into the system? And so, you know, part of the work that we've tried to do is to look for multiple ways for parents to engage rather than just really sticking to the traditional methods that maybe were present when I was growing up or when I was in the school system and, and changing those narratives of parent engagement can look many different ways and not to say one is right or one is wrong, that they're all important um, and they, they all have value within supporting a child's education. You talked about involving parents in different ways. Obviously, there's the traditional way through the PTA or PTO, but what about non-traditional ways of involving parents? Yeah, I think that is really the next kind of wave of uh, education and looking at parent engagement. And there are many, many different ways to do it. Um, however, the magic part of it is working with the parents directly in order to understand what they want, need, or would use. And, you know, for, for our district specifically, that's taken, you know, I've been doing this for uh, 12 years um, and been doing that work specifically probably for the last eight. And it continues to evolve and it continues to change. So you kind of think you've got something that has been like, oh, okay, well, We'll do this for a while, and then it may morph into to something else. So, for instance, home visits have been really important as far as creating connections with families that, again, for our district, 
are bussed in from probably about eight miles down the road and are are disconnected from the district by language, by socioeconomics, by eight miles of highway. And so going into the community and actually visiting with parents and building trust and building relationships and having a, a place for parents to share their ideas or give us feedback on some ideas that maybe we have that we think would be good for parent engagement has been really valuable. And so what has happened is one of the ways that we have parent engagement is we do a homework club actually in the community. It's a very small office space in a government subsidized housing apartment complex where a lot of our students live. And that has allowed for the one quick question. So parents know that I'm there or a Spanish speaking staff person is there and they come over and they ask things, you know, something like for that concert is, you know, do you have, does the kid have to wear khakis or, you know, just little stuff that adds up to parent engagement um, and it adds up to parents feeling connected with the school all the way to big things. Like we were doing a meeting tonight of a Corre Voz and Corre Voz means word of mouth. And this was kind of a foundational cornerstone of our work with parent engagement in the Latino community is that we look at issues that were traditionally misunderstood or not well communicated in education. And we sit with parents and discuss it. So they tell us ideas that they've got on it or questions that they've got on on whatever topic. And uh, it really has become very much two-way communication. It is not uh, me sitting there with a PowerPoint unloading a ton of information on the parents. It sometimes can be that we have some information we've got to share, but it's rich with discussion. We're stopping, we're doing the meetings in Spanish and, uh, and then the discussion is happening two ways. So, so there's that type of thing. We've got a newspaper now that we're doing in Spanish that's all highlighting work that the district is doing and the kids are the ones actually translating it, our high school kids are. So that's leading to parent engagement because the parents have a different vehicle of understanding different points that are happening in the, in the school district. So, but it's all parent driven. All of this was, yes, I had some of the ideas. Yes, Lori had some of the ideas, but we get feedback on it. We get guided by it. And then from that, other other ideas come up and parents bring us other ideas of, hey, this would be helpful. This would be useful. I don't understand this. I want to do that. How can we participate here? So it becomes very different than sending home the newsletter or the email communication, which has value. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't do that. It's just what's your and, right? What? How else are you are you offering ways for parents to engage? Um, I think another big shift from, from our kind of department approach to family engagement is thinking about how do you scale that kind of success? Because we've a good relationship and a trusting relationship with a lot of the families um, because of the work that Jenny and, and Teresa Taylor, the principal, at that school have built over 10 plus years, those children grow up and they move on to our other schools. And they feel so connected to Jenny that parents, even when their kids are in middle and high school, will call Miss Schultz instead of contacting the school counselor at their new school. So some of that work is thinking, how do we now, because we do have a trusting relationship, how do we find other people and bring in other, other of our staff members from our school to also um, make sure that, that parents do have access to the people who they need and it doesn't just have to come through Glacier Edge or from one place. So our, we're, we're lucky in Verona, we have a wonderful translation interpretation team who also have wonderful relationships with our Spanish speaking families. And we really worked last year at looking at different family engagement models from across the country and trying to align some of our work to 
these family engagement goals. And one of the one of the main shifts for them was really in seeing their their role as being more than than just the messenger conveying the message um, from English to Spanish and Spanish to English, and really understanding their the importance of being that cultural broker for families. Because even though we do a really good job of sending all communication home in Spanish, just because something is translated or interpreted doesn't mean it means anything to families. And that's that's true for English-speaking families. I'm sure lots of us can think of situations where we've heard somebody telling us really technical or specific information in English, and it hasn't really meant a whole lot. When there's a language barrier, it's it's even harder. So our translation team has been really key in coming back and, and debriefing about what are some of those main topics or themes that keep coming up that you're experiencing when you're interpreting a meeting or when you are interpreting a presentation where you see a major disconnect between what we're communicating as a school system and what parents are understanding or or if it if we should be conveying the information in a different way that would be more meaningful and allow for families to really engage with us and evaluate what we're doing in a different way. So I really believe that if school districts have interpreters, they work with families from the moment they register their child for pre-K up until they cross the graduation stage at our commencement ceremony. So they see everything and they are with families side by side for every single meeting, parent-teacher conferences, information meetings, literacy nights, Corre La Voz meetings. So they have such a, a great view and perspective on when families do feel engaged and when they don't. For folks who don't have a translation department within their district, do you have any suggestions for ways that they can go about looking into getting this service? Well, actually, one one place I would suggest school counselors um, look into is to talk to an administrator about how the district is using Title III funds. So Title III funds are federal funds, and they are tied to all things related to English learners. And so you can use Title III funds to help fund translation support. And that would be one avenue that a district would have to perhaps look into either contracting out with people from the community to do some of that interpretation or translation work. And there are also other services out there. We have a contract with another company for languages other than Spanish. And the the cost is actually is not too high. And it has a wonderful option of like a video conference. So it doesn't just seem like a three-way phone call with somebody off in the distance. So I would say that's a really important avenue because it's good to have Spanish-speaking staff help with that, but it's also not fair to parents to rely on people whose level of proficiency might not really be that high, and it's really not giving families that meaningful access. So I would, I, I think it's better than nothing, but I do believe that if you take a look at what our state and federal laws require in terms of family engagement and involvement. All of the language talks about engaging families in ways that is meaningful and understandable to them. So it really is something where that would be a great place for schools and school districts to challenge themselves to really evaluate, are we doing that? And if not, how do we perhaps reallocate some resources so that we're able to do that? 
We'll hear more from Jenny and Lori in a minute, but first, did you know that ASCA offers a wealth of resources on parental involvement? Specifically, we offer a couple of recorded webinars on the topic that can be found under the ASCA on air tab on our website, schoolcounselor.org. There are also several journal articles in the Professional School Counseling Journal on parental involvement. Ones that I found particularly helpful were the articles Empowering Marginalized Parents and Emerging Parental Empowerment Model for School Counselors. Another great one was Measuring the Relationship Between Parent, Teacher, and Student Problem Behavior Reports and Academic Achievement. Lastly, Involving Low-Income Parents in the Schools, Community-Centric Strategies for School Counselors. As a member, you have access to all of these articles on our website, schoolcounselor.org, found under the Publications section. I've heard you say home visits a few times. Can you talk about who is responsible for doing those home visits, who organizes them? Is there an official process for those? Um, I think, you know, back probably eight, ten years ago, it was really rested with the social workers primarily. Um, they were sort of the ones that that was in their, their lane and that's what people expected. But things have changed within our district where now teachers are doing home visits. I do them regularly. I think it, it's it's opened up more now to what makes sense for the family, what makes sense for the, the student and looking at it as a method of really trying to have a vehicle or a, a way to engage families that maybe um, you normally wouldn't uh, connect with. So actually as recent as maybe two or three years ago, the district took on the initiative of uh, having uh, all teachers do a home visit or at least a connection with parents before school started. And then it could be in the home, it could be in the community, and just looking at really just discussing the students and and what the parents' hopes and interests were and what they thought might be happening for that year. So less about, you know, here's our curriculum, here's um, these test scores, that sort of thing, and really just trying to give teachers and parents a couple of minutes to, to connect on a human level. So that's been pretty neat to see that the feedback from parents has been really positive. And so it, it's much wider now than it was. So this is our third year of doing what Jenny just talked about, which is what we call Family Contact Day. So this was in one of those first days of school in August when teachers are working but students are not in attendance yet. We repurposed one of those calendar days for teachers to do some kind of family contact meeting, whether it's at home or in the community, preferably not at school, preferably in a space of the family's choosing, for teachers and parents to connect on a very human level, much like Jenny just explained. And so this this was um, a, a big shift for a lot of our teachers. And teachers don't get a lot of preparation in teacher ed programs about talking to families. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we learned after our first year of doing this is that there is a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear on the parts of teachers, not because they don't want to talk to families, but because sometimes it's hard to have those types of conversations. Or if you've never gone into the community to visit someone's home, that can, that's just a new, new experience for some people. And we realize we, we need to support our teachers in that process. So we do have some kind of like talking points and guidelines for teachers if they want to use them. Mm-hmm. Some people use them, some people don't. And what we ask is at the end of each visit, 
And the visits can be as long as 10 minutes or they can be an hour long. But teachers need to meet with families for seven and a half hours, which is the workday from August 1st until the end of September, mid-October, to kind of do that work. Mm -hmm. And we give parents a mini survey. So we just send them a link with a survey to ask if that time was well spent, if they felt like it was valuable. And we have overwhelmingly received positive feedback from families about just appreciating having that time to get to know people. And then when you do want to make a phone call, it's that much easier because there's a human connection on both sides. So it's it's not families being afraid to take a phone call from, from a teacher and teachers being more comfortable making that phone call and contact later on in the year. And then also the district has um, had myself and the interpretation team do PD. So teachers can sign up for that for one of their PD options. And we've had great attendance and nice feedback. I think that teachers have found that helpful to kind of not necessarily problem solve, but think about what it could be like and practice working with an interpreter or practice what some of those conversations might be like and just just relieving some of those wonderings and uh, making it all oh yeah, this is all totally doable and possible. And so, yeah, the district's been good about that too, as far as making sure that that's offered. That particular one, I co-lead along with three interpreters because our interpretation team is very well-versed on home visits as well because they do a million of them. They're very comfortable um, talking about kind of social norms within various communities and just um, giving tips or ideas. And that level of exposure really, I think, helps So you just mentioned uh, school counselors specifically. So as we've been working to scale some of the family engagement work that has been so successful at Glacier Edge, Jenny has reached out to her counterparts at other schools to be some of those key players in providing that entry point for other schools. And I have to say that probably the the school that we've seen kind of the the next iteration of success with with all of this um, has been at our high school. Mm And that I'm saying that with a little, little bit of surprise, just because it's a bigger school and there's a lot more people that, and a lot, but our um, high school counseling team has really been present at a lot of the meetings that we've held in the community. And that has opened up other doors for us in terms of opportunities we can provide for families about advanced placement courses, about uh, financial aid for college, um, about pathways, post-secondary pathways, and academic and career planning. And so Jenny's connection with her counseling counterparts has really helped with that scaling piece. So I do really feel that our school counselors play a key role in in bridging the relationship between families and the school system. And also, we're we're getting more and more teachers involved as yeah. well. The main thing that I tried to talk about with teachers is talking about community-based engagement and looking at community engagement differently as far as just trying to make sure that we highlight that there's, it's almost like a continuum, right? There's ways that you can be looking at how you're engaging with parents. So when we talk about, here's the traditional traditional methods of engaging family, what would those be? Report cards, parent-teacher conferences at the school, you know, maybe a weekly or monthly newsletter. And again, all this is not me saying don't do that. This is us just trying to say, okay, here's here's our foundation. If this is what we look at as kind of what teachers have been exposed to or what strategies or tools that they have. And teachers bring up other points as well. And then we talk about moving 
along the continuum to something like being present in multiple communities or being available for different connections as far as community that maybe you are disconnected with in your own personal life. So, or that you don't necessarily kind of mix with. Again, because our district is interesting as well. Maybe multiple districts are like this, but a lot of our teachers live in Verona. And so there's a lot of opportunities for kind of that one quick question or contact with families on a on sort of a personal level. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. However, as Laurie was talking about with um, certain neighborhoods that are more disconnected or more in poverty, you know, we don't have a lot of teachers, if any, who are living in those neighborhoods at, at all. And so those opportunities aren't available. So we're talking about trying to build those opportunities into into the school system or into the into the methodology. So we look at that and then we talk about answering questions. I, I basically share my story of I when I first started doing home visits, I had all sorts of worries and wonders. Was I being rude? Um, was I missing some cultural norms? Was I imposing on the family? I had pretty well talked myself out of doing these home visits uh, when I had first decided. And it was actually an interpreter who gave me the courage to say, you know what, just go try it. And if it doesn't work, you never have to do it again. And, you know, you will have, have given it a go. And the level of positive response that came after doing those 10 or 12 home visits that we did um, changed everything. And so I share that story of here's the mess ups that I've done or not the mess ups, but the learning curve that I had and that that's all normal and that parents aren't thinking, Oh, you know, I wish this was over that sort of thing. It's, it's, they're really very happy that you're there. If they're not happy that they're there or that you're there, they won't invite you back or, you know, and that's fine. Like parents know how to say no parents. I can respect that the parent is inviting me over and I'm going over in order to really benefit the child. Usually what it is, is just a sharing of my story, answering the teacher's worries and wonders because everybody has them and really kind of allowing teachers to have that space to say like, okay, this is possible. I am building it up in my head of being, you know, weird or awkward or that sort of thing. And oftentimes it really is. From the district level, we do send out before the summer and again, kind of right before the family contact window opens just some kind of guiding questions that teachers can use. So there's kind of like a little conference template with some ideas for questions to ask so it doesn't turn into a conversation about the syllabus or about classroom rules. It's really more of a, this is who I am. I'm your child's teacher. I want to learn about you, what you want for your child. What does your child want to do? What are they good at? What are they interested in? How can I bring some of those interests in the classroom? But it's really just meant to be, uh, let's get to know each other on a very human level. Yeah, it is. And I think that's often the piece that's you know missing because everybody's crunched for time and everything else. And so it's, it's been a really uh, big gift that the district has put that in place. That all sounds really great. Parent involvement shouldn't just rest on the school counselor, but is definitely a school-wide and district-wide initiative. Are there any special events that you all do to encourage parent engagement or involvement? Yes, we do parent engagement events, but I would say that's really like the chocolate cake of the whole experience. So I talk about like chocolate cake and vitamins with parent engagement and vitamins is the academic content or the, the connection that you're trying, the information you're trying to share with parents or the information you're trying to gain from parents. And the chocolate cake is the fun stuff, right? So maybe that's the if you're having an event, you bring food, or if it's a big event, there's face painters or something like that. So it's 
It's the idea that you're not throwing a party for the sake of throwing a party. So we do parent engagement events. They're oftentimes in the actual community. So the apartment complex, one of the apartment complexes that I spoke about, we'll do back to school events there. Um, where, yes, we've got face painters, we've got food, people bring items, we've got school supplies, parents can meet teachers, we can talk about bus lists, you know, so we've got school stuff and we've got some fun stuff there. We also were going to do a Hispanic Heritage event a couple of weeks ago. We ended up needing to postpone that, so that will happen next spring, but that was also going to be in a community park, mostly parent-led activities and ideas. We do stuff at schools at various sites. The high school does a high school 101 night where they really get down into the nitty gritty of who to contact, when, how, who's on your child's team, that sort of stuff. So there's a variety of, of events that we do. But my word of caution there is I feel like oftentimes when people are doing parent engagement work, they want to start with the, the splashy event and then are kind of sad when the turnout is lower than they expected. And I would encourage people to do the grassroots work first, to do the kind of small day-to-day work and efforts, and then do the event, because then you will get parents to, you get a higher parent attendance because parents will be telling you what they want from that event. So that's my advice for people who are just starting in this work, is do the day-to-day kind of little, little tiny connections first, save the big splashy events for later. Can you talk about parent engagement within an equity framework and what that means and how does this impact your approach? Verona developed an equity framework a few years ago to really define what it means to be living out our mission, which is every student must be successful. And we got together and we're talking about what are all of the different things that we do as schools? What is all the work that we do every day involve? And We came up with kind of four main areas. One is equity leadership. Another piece is the teaching and learning aspect, really student-centered. Another one is safe, inclusive learning environments. And the fourth idea was integrating families and community into our schools. And so that work led to our continuous improvement teams, really thinking about how are we engaging with families? How are we integrating them into our classroom so that there isn't just one-way communication, but there's two-way communication? So that was really probably a first step that we were taking a look at. How do we know if we're, we are engaging in one-way or two-way communication? And what I mean by that is one-way communication is sending a newsletter home, sending something home in a backpack, emailing families, with really no way for families to provide any kind of feedback or input about whatever is going home. And so thinking about that notion of two-way communication is a really good first step. Like, how are we actually getting feedback from our families about our programming, about the, the family events that we offer? Are we offering things that really families aren't interested in at all and we're completely missing the mark on what they would like or need from us? So a second step, and a lot of districts do this, is um, send out surveys. And surveys are a great way of getting feedback from families, but it's really important to take a look at who's answering the surveys. So when we send out electronic surveys to families, we tend to get disproportionate amounts of, of our white families responding, and the respondents are not representative of our student population. So then we have to think, well, again, whose voices are we hearing and who voice, whose voices are missing? 
so we've then kind of gone, taken a next step and really spent time on gathering focus groups. So when we really need information about something, we just undertook a strategic planning process in the district and uh, wanted to make sure we heard from a lot of different families across our community. And we, we really spent a lot of time setting up focus groups and allowing families to just dialogue about things that were working for them, things that weren't working for them. It takes a lot of time to do that. But if you don't, um, you run the risk of really missing out on knowing what your families value and what you can do to better support them and meet their needs. So I think there's a lot of potential in, in thinking about having some kind of framework for your school. And this having this framework does tie into a lot of kind of the compliance pieces of family engagement for schools that are Title I schools. But it has to be more about the compliance. There needs to be a commitment to really building relationships. So the bottom line in an equity framework has to do with relationship building. Yes, definitely relationships. It seems that that was a theme throughout this conversation. Relationship building with parents and building trust between parents and the school that we're all in this together and have the same goals in mind, which is to educate our students and prepare them to be successful in the next stage of their life. But also relationships with other faculty members in the building. So school counselors can't do this alone. They need support from teachers, administrators, and district staff. And also building relationships with feeder schools so that families can maintain that same level of trust and human connection with the school, even when their child moves on to the next level. So thank you so much, Jenny and Lori, for your insight. This has been invaluable. And to wrap up today with what gives you hope. Gosh, I mean, so much. There's so many positive things happening within. One of the most favorite things that I do right now is I'm going to the high school and I'm working with a group of students. The majority were my previous students when they were little, and they're working towards their seal of biliteracy. And it's just really a beautiful thing to see the kids being completely bilingual and biliterate and working on these high-level documents and just seeing the collaboration amongst multiple groups within our one district and just the beauty that's coming from that and the amount of support and positive response that the community on the whole is giving the work and, and the students. So I always leave that meeting with this group of teenagers just feeling very hopeful about not only their futures, but really all of our futures. When I think about some of our families and the the relationships that are continuing to grow and and you start seeing families coming to events that maybe you wouldn't think they would be present at, like strategic planning committee meetings or with attendance area boundary committee meetings. And they are choosing to come into spaces where traditionally maybe they weren't coming because they A, didn't know about it or didn't feel invited. Um, or didn't feel that their voice mattered. And we're starting to see more diverse families come to those types of committees and interacting with board members. And I, I just feel so hopeful when I see that level of engagement. Now we're kind of breaking down some of those systemic barriers and we still have a lot more work to do, but I do believe that we are building trust with a lot of our families and, and they're showing up. They, they rise to the occasion every single time. So the, work, the hard work pays off and it, and it really does revolve around relationships. 